Hi everybody, uh, good morning to you. Really good to uh, uh, see you all this morning, good to be here. Um, I'm going to be looking at Mark chapter 10 um, with us. Um, I was having one of those conversations with, uh, with Rosa in the week. Rosa has just started secondary school and um, I'm always intrigued to know what it's like going to school these days um, because it's an awful long time since I was there. Um, and I discovered... Uh, to my surprise, at school these days, they don't have textbooks. At least Rosa doesn't. I don't know if, if that's the case all the way through secondary school. No textbooks. Back in my day, that's what school was. It was all about textbooks. Now it's all about online learning. Um, and it, my, my mind was blown, and I was a bit worried about what they do. I was hoping that they still have science lessons, though, this morning, because I've got two science stories for you. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that the young folk amongst us are going to have any idea what I'm, what I'm talking about. But I know that us older folk had science lessons in dusty science labs, and we had things called litmus paper. Do you still do litmus paper in school these days? Yeah, some nods there. That's good, good to hear and reassuring to me that the whole world isn't changing. We still have litmus paper. You know what litmus paper is, don't you? Well, well do, do you know what litmus paper is? Do, do you learn about litmus paper in, prim in primary school, guys? Elspeth, Rosa, Reuben, did you, do, did you do that in primary school? No? Any idea what litmus paper is? No? no? Cool, that's fine, Reuben, I'm going to tell you. Litmus paper is a thing that you stick in like a liquid or some other substance, and it tells you if it's an acid or an alkali. That's more or less what I remember it being. At least I hope it's still the case. You stick it in, and if it turns red, it's an acid, and if it turns blue or stays blue or... I can't remember. There's some, something to do with that. But the point is that litmus paper tells you something important about something. And it's become an expression that we use, hasn't it? A litmus test. If you want to know something important about something or somebody, you do a litmus test on them. You, 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 do, you do one particular thing which tells you everything you need to know about it. Here in Mark chapter 10 this morning, we have something of a litmus test. Because Jesus asks a question. He asks it twice, in fact. I don't know if you spotted it as we were reading it. He asks the same question twice. And it is a litmus test, which is going to tell us, based on the answer to that question, something very important about the people who answer it. It's a litmus test, which is going to reveal the heart like as well. That's the question, isn't it? He asks it twice there. One in verse 36 of James and John. What do you want me to do for you? And then he asks it again of Bartimaeus, the blind beggar, in verse 51. What do you want me to do for you? Same question, very different answers. Lots for us to learn. And as we sit here in this room this morning, we can do that same litmus test experiment on our hearts. Reflect for ourselves. Hear Jesus asking you this morning, what do you want me to do for you? And use this question and our answer to it to help us understand our own hearts, where we are uh, with following Jesus. We can't do anything more important than that this morning to get an answer to what's going on in our hearts when it comes to Jesus. So with God's help, that's what we will do. Uh, Jesus is on the way up to Jerusalem, verse 32 says, where he is going to die. It's the third time that he's told um, his disciples this. Uh, but he's on the road, marching with his face set towards Jerusalem. But he's up there alone, up the front, isn't he? And everyone else is kind of hanging back. 
It's a slightly strange scene that, that they're amazed and afraid, we're told. Exactly what they're amazed uh, about and, and what they're afraid of isn't specifically told, but, but we, know, we know for sure, it is clear that we're supposed to see that they just don't understand what Jesus is doing. This whole business about going to Jerusalem to die on a cross, he's explained it twice now, he's going to explain it again in verse 33, but they still don't get it, just like they haven't got it throughout the whole book so far. And as if to demonstrate just how much they aren't on the same page as Jesus, James and John, two of his most uh, trusted, closest friends, in verse 35, approach him. They've also been hanging back, maybe having a chat to one another at, at the back, and they pluck up the courage, and they march up to him, and, and they say, would you just do whatever we want, Jesus? Uh, could you do us a favor? We've all had that one asked of us, haven't we? And if you're sensible, you uh, don't say yes before you find out what the question is. But it, it's an odd question, isn't it? Asked in a, in a presumptuous, slightly, slightly rude way. Jesus, though, is incredibly gentle with them, isn't he? So see, patiently, he just asks this million-dollar question in return. What, what is it you want me to do for you, James and John? And the answer is striking. Let us sit at your right and left hand and share your glory, Jesus, please. Please let us be your prime minister and your chancellor in heaven. Give us the seats of honor. Give us the power. Give us the authority. Give us the recognition, Lord. We, we think that's the place for us. That's where we belong. There it is. Hearts laid bare. What do you want me to do for you? And the answer says it all. Now we can think about this a, a little bit more if you want a heading. Uh, we can call it James and John. They were wanting more for me. Wanting more. For me. It's essentially self-centeredness, it's, it's concerned with power and status and honor and reputation. This is a heart that thinks about me first. It's a heart that's willing to push to the front of the queue, that thinks the front of the queue is, is the right place for me. It's a heart that, to mix my metaphors, sharpens its elbows to ensure it keeps in front of its competitors. And James and John had ten other competitors, and they wanted to make sure that they were first. They would do whatever it took to keep them behind. It's a heart, isn't it, that, that might look and sound spiritual. Verse 37, you know, they're, they're using the, the, the right words. They know that Jesus is the king. They know that heaven is coming. That they, they want to share, share his glory. So it looks and sounds spiritual, but it sees spiritual stuff as nothing more than a means of getting more for me. So as we reflect on that, what more for me might we want? What do you want me to do for you? Um, only you know the answer to that. Um, is it let, other, let others think well of me? Is it uh, give me some comfort, please, Jesus? Give me some status? Um, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I'm fairly high up the, the, the pecking order, Lord. At least I'm not right at the bottom. So, so, so you know... Could I have some recognition for that, please? Well, we'll think more about what it might mean to have that attitude later. But we need to reflect on that for ourselves, don't we? Of course, James and John stand in stark contrast to Bartimaeus, uh, this blind beggar that we meet towards the end of the passage. And the way Mark tells the story, it's clear that he's, he's asking us to compare the two. On the one side, we have James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and we have Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. 
So they're kind of introduced in similar ways, but, but they're opposites in other ways. James and John are the insiders. They're friends, well known to Jesus. They're in his inner circle. Bartimaeus is an outsider, probably never met Jesus before. He's a probably smelly beggar. He's someone who everyone else tries to stop coming to Jesus, just like they tried to stop the children coming last week. And there he is, sat on the pavement, begging for money. It's not hard for us to picture that, is it, in our city? You can picture him in your mind's eye. And he might be blind, but he hears that Jesus is walking past, and he stops begging for money, and he starts begging for mercy. And when Jesus asks him that same question, what do you want me to do for you, the answer is altogether different, isn't it? Verse 51, let me see, let me see. So Bartimaeus is about wanting mercy to see. The son of Timaeus meets the son of David. He cries out for mercy and immediately he gets it. Verse 52, immediately he recovered his sight, just at a word from Jesus. We know from Mark's gospel, don't we? We've seen it already a few times that seeing is really significant. There's been this big theme of spiritual blindness, needing, to, needing spiritual sight to really see who Jesus is and what he's come to do and to understand him. And so the fact that Bartimaeus is healed is, is significant. It's loaded with symbolism. This is spiritual sight given to someone who asked for it, someone who knew that it was only possible by mercy and by a miracle. What do you want from me, Bartimaeus? I want a miracle. I know I've got no rights to it. I'm not pretending that I deserve it. Contrast James and John. I've got no claim on it. It will only come by mercy. But please give it to me. Please, King, Son of David, Jesus. You can do it. So that's the, the really simple contrast between the two guys, isn't it? What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asks, and we see their answers. How do we answer it? What do you want Jesus to do for you? Jesus is asking us that question right now through these living words, through the Spirit. He's speaking to us each and asking us that same question. What is on offer from Jesus? Are we here because we want more for me or because we want mercy to see? And perhaps as you've been reflecting on it over the past few minutes, uh, as I've been asking you to do that, perhaps you find it difficult to, to, to know. Um, but the passage helps us to know what our answer is. If we want mercy to see, then what will happen is it will find ourselves with a particular attitude to service. Following Jesus is about service, not status. And we see that in Bartimaeus' example and we'll see it in a moment as well in, in Jesus' other words. Look carefully down at verse 50. Uh, the people say to Bartimaeus, uh, Jesus is calling you, he wants you, get, get, get up. Verse 50, and throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. It's a curious little detail, isn't it? Throwing off his cloak. Sometimes uh, we can maybe make too much of little details like this, but, but cloaks in those days were, were symbols of, of power and status. So while Bartimaeus' beggar's cloak clearly wasn't going to be anything fancy, it wasn't going to be worth much, much on vintage, I, I think there's a bit of symbol, symbolism here. James and John are seeking the cloaks of power and authority in, in, in the heavenly kingdom. Bartimaeus is willing to throw off even the pathetic cloak that he already has. 
just interested in following Jesus. Seeing clearly, becoming a disciple means leaving all claims to status behind. And following Jesus, right at the end of our passage there, as Bartimaeus does, on the way to the cross. The disciples, remember at the beginning, that they were, they were following Jesus to the cross, but kind of reluctantly and confusedly, and they, that they wanted to sit down next to him in glory. Bartimaeus starts the passage sitting down, but he rises up and, and stands up and follows Jesus on the way to the cross. The implication is that he's more than happy to serve and to suffer. So we see that in Bartimaeus' example, but it's spelled out too by Jesus in perhaps the key verses in the passage, verses 42 to 45. Here he exposes James and John's total misunderstanding of his kingdom. Let me read. Uh, Jesus called them to him, that's all the disciples in fact, and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, the King, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Earlier on this morning in family Sunday school, the, 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 the smaller ones were uh, thinking about service and um, uh, they were shown a picture of King Charles in all his glory and all his splendor. King Jesus in all his glory and splendor lives by altogether different rules to our rulers though. Our rulers uh, have the opportunity for, for greatness to mean that other people will make your life easy for you because you can afford it, because you deserve it, because you've got the status Jesus' greatness is completely different, isn't it? It's in his willingness to serve us that he shows his greatness. Jesus' kingdom is upside down. It's back to front to what we're used to. It's about service and not status. So if you're struggling to know whether you're a Bartimaeus or a James or a John, or most likely you know that there's both in you, then the best way to, to think further ab about that is to find out and ask what your attitude is to service. So here are some questions for you. Who do you most admire? Genuinely, who do you most admire? Who do you want to be like? Is it the ones who serve gladly and joyfully and humbly? Is it the ones that no one notices? The ones who do the hard jobs, the dirty jobs, the thankless jobs? Are they the ones that we admire? Or is it the ones who are powerful enough to have people serve them? Are they the ones we'd quite like to be like? Is that attractive to us? That we can be so special, so, so, so made it, we've made it in life, and so other people do stuff for us now, and that's what we want. Well, that's, that's not it, is it? Here's another question. When you do something uh, for someone else, for church, in whatever context in life, when you do something and no one notices it, how do you feel? How does it make you feel? Is there a sense of, of bitterness about that? You just feel unsettled? It's like, well, surely someone, someone should be saying how great I am for doing that. Or are we just content knowing that the Lord saw it? Here's another question. What do you wish you had more? 
Do you wish you had more ability to persuade other people to get your own way so that people followed you? Or do you wish you had more willingness to bless others and serve others and build them up? What do you long for? What do you long to be like? Jesus couldn't be clearer, could he, on what the, quest- the answers to those questions should be. And we know what the answers to those questions should be as well. But it's hard to pay more than lip service to them, isn't it, sometimes? So do we genuinely believe and live as if the great ones amongst us are not the rich, the impressive, the clever, the ones apparently in power, the ones who are good at getting their own way? Do we believe that the great ones amongst us are not the ones who say the right things all the time and quote the right Bible verses, having read all the best books, but they're the ones who serve? And who serve not for self-promotion, but for the sake of following Jesus. The greatest of all, even the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve. And the great ones amongst us do the same. We don't have time this morning to explore all the possible implications of that. There are many. But I do want to say that this passage tells us that the real heroes of this church are the many of you guys who serve quietly and joyfully and willingly and persistently. Who write letters to the elders at Christmas time to thank and encourage them. Who pray regularly for the church. Perhaps feeling like there's nothing else you can do, but that's what you do. Who love and serve one another practically, visiting, caring, texting, who turn up week after week on a Friday night, barely having had time to eat your tea after work because you want to love and to teach our young people. Young people who, at least occasionally, run out of the door without even a word of thanks. People who turn up early on a Sunday morning to set up and get ready to play music for us. There's, of course, a million other examples. And if I've left the thing that you do out, that is, uh, that is not uh, intentional uh, um, a dig at you, but thank you for your service here. It is wonderful, it is great. Many of you, I think, who work quietly like that are women. Thank you for that. Many of you have other pulls on your time. Many of you are suffering in all sorts of other ways while you do it, but you serve, and thank you. But I want to spend our last few minutes thinking about how we should deal with the fact that for all the good examples amongst us, we know that we do all get this wrong as well. We all do, don't we? We know know that. There is James and John in all of us. Sometimes that joyful service, which which we know is right and we know is beautiful, just feels a million miles away for us. We'd kind of like to live like that, but somehow we just can't ever quite get round to it. Or we just can't quite see how life adds up if we live like that. you've, You've got to look after yourself, haven't you, in life? There's got to be a few sharp elbows, a bit of looking out for number one. So the question to consider for our last few minutes is this. What hope is there for those of us who know that there is the selfish ugliness of James and John inside us? And this is where I tell you about my other science lesson. Did you ever do this science lesson at school, biology, secondary school? Do you still do that? Where the teacher holds in these disgusting things, these lungs, and one is black and tarry, and you touch it and it's hard, um, and the other is kind of soft and squishy, and the, the teacher gets out their pump, and they kind of stick the pump in one end of it and blow it up, and the lungs expand beautifully. Do you, have you had that biology lesson? Do you, do, do you do that? 
Now, you guys don't do anything fun these days. All the adults behind you are nodding. You guys are looking very blankly. Um, but the, we get presented with, with this thing. Here, here's something beautiful. I mean, it's not that beautiful on the right, but it's, it's what we want. It's healthy. Here's something ugly. And we're kind of said, okay, which one are you going to choose? You know, which one do you want to be? And obviously, you know, we, we want the nice, healthy lungs. We don't, we don't want to smoke. Yeah, okay, I'll try not to smoke. But life's often like that. We're presented with this stark contrast, and the onus is all on us to make the decision and to change ourselves. Here's the contrast. You know, you can be, be beautiful like Bartimaeus, or you can be ugly like James and John. Go off and do it. The good news is that it, that's not how it works with Jesus. Okay, Christian change, Christian living is altogether different to that. You know, it's good to see the contrast in this passage and think, yeah, I, I don't want to be like James and John. I know I should be like Bartimaeus and I want to be. But it's just essential that we recognize that, that we're not left alone just to go off and make that happen. This is, this is one of the best bits of news about Jesus. I love this about Jesus. Yes, he, he gives us commands and instructions but he never, never, never leaves us alone to obey them. There is hope for us who want to change and who need to change. What is that hope? Well, some very simple things. But Jesus saves sinners. Jesus saves people who are wicked and with wicked heart desires like James and John had, with thoughts of themselves more than anyone else. If you feel enslaved to selfishness, trapped in a world where it feels impossible to, to live successfully without putting yourself first, trapped by fear of what other people think of you and a desire to please them and impress them, trapped in all sorts of other ways by sin, well, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom is a price paid to free a slave. Jesus Christ died on a cross to rescue you from that slavery. He took your place. He paid your, that price. He showed you mercy. Jesus saves slaves to sin. The cross is, is not just a demonstration of service for us to copy. It's first and foremost, it is the hope that we have, that we need because we fail. So as you look at this contrast, as you want to be more Bartimaeus and less James and John, be assured that Jesus saves people who do fail, like James and John. Second hope for us, Jesus is patient with selfish sinners. You will, of course, fail in this time and time again. It will feel like slow progress much of the time, but the grace and patience of Jesus is deep. It is deep and deep and deep. Look at how, how he is with his disciples. We saw at the beginning that his kind of patient, gentle response to their rude question. How wicked they were to talk like that. How brazen they were. How slow of their, in their heart. In chapter 9, verse 19, Jesus is exasperated with his disciples. How long must I put up with you, he says. But he does. These guys learned these lessons eventually. They would follow him to the cross eventually. He tells them that. They probably don't get it in verse 39, but that's what he says. You, you are going to follow me to the cross. Yes, right now, they're stupid, they're slow, they're faithless, they're proud, but they're his, and he loves them, and he's patient with them, and it's the same with us. You will fail. 
You will see James and John in your life uh, many times, every day. But Jesus is patient. You're his. And finally, related to that, Jesus changes sinners. Jesus changes selfish hearts. Yes, it does take a miracle to change a heart, to give sight, but Jesus does miracles. So ask him. Ask him for that sight that sees the beauty of this way of living. Beg him for that heart that loves to serve and is willing to serve. Jesus changes hearts. He does that miracle. Look with me for this last moment at verse 43. Um, Jesus has been talking about how uh, the, the, the Gentiles lord over them, but verse 43, it shall not be so among you. Now you can of course read that as a command. It is a command in many ways. You must not be like that. But you can also read it as a promise. You will not be like this. It won't be like this among my people, Jesus says. You will learn service. You will follow my example of service to you on the cross. My spirit will change you. That's what I'm doing amongst my people. I'm with you. I'm changing you. I will take you home through the cross to glory. And I will take you there all the way. So three things to remember, as you, to, to take heart as you see the sin in your heart, as you see what you would like to be but find it impossible to be yourself. Well, Jesus saves people like, like you. Jesus is patient with people like you. And Jesus changes people like you. Let's thank him for that and pray with confidence that he would do this pride-killing work in us while we wait. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we consider that question, what do we want Jesus to do for us? We say now that we want mercy because we know we are sinners. We want to see and we want you to be patient with us while we learn to follow you. We are so grateful that you will do that for us because that's what you're like. And that's what you promise. We thank you for your power to change hearts and your patience with sinners like us. We thank you that you went to the cross to give your life as a ransom for us. And we thank you for Jesus. Amen.